All right. So let me make sure that doesn't roll off. Okay. 1752, any of you around? In 1752, Arthur Price, who was the Archbishop of Cashel in Ireland, left 100 pounds, approximately $13,000, to his 27-year-old grandson, or godson, whose name was also Arthur. Now, young Arthur had experienced a spiritual awakening influenced by the English preacher John Wesley, who taught that the followers of Jesus should use their gifts, their God-given capacities and talents in creative ways to impact society. Now, Wesley summarized this Christ-centered stewardship of life with this little ditty. Do all the good you can by all the means you can, in all the ways you can, in all the places you can, at all the times you can, to all the people you can, as long as ever you can. Now, those were uh, tough days for the Irish in the late 18th, mid-18th century, a time known as the gin craze, and Arthur's heart ached. Water was deemed unsafe to drink because of the microorganisms that were causing diseases, and so many were drinking gin and whiskey as their primary beverage, which led to excessive drunkenness. And if you want to do an interesting historical search, Search out William Hogarth's picture, Gin Lane, which is essentially a massive political cartoon from this, a this era that describes and tells in pictures what was happening socially in this time. So water's deemed unsafe, drunkenness is everywhere. Every sixth house on average was a gin house. Arthur prayed for an answer. He began to sense that God was calling him to make a drink that will be good for them. And so he invested that inheritance of $13,000 into a leap of faith, combined his broken heart and love for Jesus with his entrepreneurial talents. And how big was his faith and his sense of call? Well, he signed a 9,000-year lease. <laughs> a 9,000-year lease on an abandoned brewery on St. James Gate in Dublin, and developed a stark doubt, a, a dark stout drink. <laughs> that was low in alcohol and high in iron, so that people were full before overconsuming and were made healthier by it. Studies, uh, the University of Wisconsin did a study a number of years ago, which said that this drink bolsters heart health and is infinitely better for you than coffee or pop. A drink from 1759 that still famously bears Arthur's last name. What is it? Guinness. Arthur Guinness, Jesus-centered life, has had generational impact. His grandson, Henry Grattan Guinness, was the Billy Graham of a spiritual awakening in Great Britain in the late 1800s. Another descendant of his, Lord Ivy, oversaw the end of dueling as a means of conflict resolution. His great-great-great-grandson is the Christian thinker and writer, Os Guinness. And from a business perspective, in a time where growing slums were chugging along the Industrial Revolution, and the rich were getting richer on the backs of the poor, working for Guinness was completely different. It starkly contrasted with much of the practice of the day. 
Guinness invested in their employees. By 1928, Guinness offered 24-hour medical care and dental care and on-site massage therapy. <laughs> employees' funeral expenses were covered and they had full pension. There was education for children and spouses that was fully paid. The company had libraries and athletic facilities. This was 1928, not Googleplex in 2020. And today, the Guinness Brewing Company has the Arthur Guinness Fund developed in 2009 on the 250th anniversary of Arthur's investing of his $13,000 that blesses social transformation entrepreneurship in the tradition of Arthur around the world. <clears throat> Such is the legacy of a life consumed by the call to follow Jesus with the whole of life. This is work and money for goodness sake. Over the next few weeks, we're going to consider three crucial questions of life. Are you doing all you can with your gifts and your talents for the glory of God? Second, what are you doing with what you gain from your gifts and talents for the glory of God? And third, how will you share what you gain from your gifts and talents for the glory of God? People on mission to know Jesus and make him known are called to gain all we can, save all we can, and give all we can. Now let's turn to a peculiar parable of Jesus found in Luke chapter 16, and Ryder Friedman is going to come and read it for us. Turn in your scriptures, Luke chapter 16, verses 1 to 8. The story of the corrupt manager. Jesus said to his disciples, there was once a rich man who had a manager. He got reports that the manager had been taking advantage of his position by running up huge personal expenses. So he called him in and said, what is this I hear about you? You're fired and I want your complete audit of your books. The manager said to himself, what am I going to do I've lost my job as a manager, and I'm not strong enough for a laboring job, and I'm too proud to beg. Ah, I have a plan. Here's what I'll do. Then, when I turned out into the street, people will take me into their houses. Then he went at it. One after another, he called in the people who were in debt to his master. He said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He replied, a hundred jugs of olive oil. The manager said, here, take your bill, sit down here, quick now, write 50. To the next he said, and you, what do you owe? He answered, a hundred sacks of wheat. He said, take your bill, write it in 80. Now here's a surprise, the master praised the crooked manager. And why? Because he knew how to look after himself. Streetwise people are smarter in this regard than law-abiding citizens. Thank you, Ryder. It's a very interesting parable, isn't it? Is Jesus really celebrating dishonesty? <clears throat> Let's look at it carefully. First, I want you to note something. 
If you look back in your text, you'll see that Luke chapter 15 is a story, bears three other parables. The parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son, the prodigal son. And so we note that the parable follows these three other parables. And each of these, including this one about a dishonest manager, immediately follows the Jewish religious leaders complaining about Jesus. In chapter 15, verse 2, they say this, He takes in sinners and eats meals with them, treating them like old friends. That was the complaint of the Jewish religious leaders that caused Jesus to turn to tell four parables, a parable of a lost coin, of a lost sheep, of a lost son, and now this one, the story of a dishonest manager. The parable is part four of the answer to the grumbling and complaining of those about God's generosity. When one lost sheep is found, there is a party. When one coin is found, there is a party. When just one lost son is found, there is a Thank you. Each story reveals a God lavishly and almost unrealistically generous. Who celebrates with their neighbors when you find a coin? Now, pennies are now no longer in print, in print no longer in circulation. But if you find a penny in your house, are you calling the neighbors over? No. Who throws a party for a rebellious grown-up child who finally starts acting like a grown-up? Nobody. And then there is this parable in Luke 16. A business owner has a manager who is wasting funds, opportunities, and talents. He blew his chance to work for the world's best boss. How do we know this? Well, Middle Eastern scholar Kenneth Bailey points out that if the master were a rascal, the community would not bother to report the steward's wrongful activities. If, the, if this master were a, were a scoundrel, nobody would care that he was taken advantage of, would they? The first hearers of this would have immediately identified the master's trustworthiness in the eyes of the community. And the manager is fired on the spot and told to go and hand in his accounting books. Now, no negotiation of severance is taking place, not, and there's no self-explanation or begging on the part of the guy that's just been discovered, because he actually knows he's guilty. The jig is up, and what is he going to do? He's not a ditch digger, and he's too proud to beg. He's about to hand in his accounts when he has a brainwave. He quickly calls those accounts, those people that are indebted to his master, and whose money he is managing wastefully, and he does some creative bookwork. Now, remember that in the context, how Jesus is telling the parable, that at this point, the people who are called in, the debtors who are called in, do not yet know he's fired, do they? They don't know he's fired. They think that they're, and they're asked now to sit down and write bills in their own hand. Did you catch that? Write out a new amount. To the one who owed 900 gallons of olive oil, he says, write 450. To those who owned a th uh, owed 1,000 bushels of wheat, hey, write in 800. These are massive discounts. Massive discounts that are being provided. So he leaves guilty from his meeting with his boss, but notice that he is not repentant or changing his ways at all, is he? 
In fact, he is maximizing selfishness. He seems to be investing energy in even worse behavior. His sin is growing. His character is being exposed. He does not have his master's good in mind at all, even after he's fired. The manager is attempting a rapid transformation into a Robin Hood character. He's making a lot of indebted people very happy. He's making it possible to have friends when this job is over. Now, why is he doing this? Because he knows the master's generous nature. Now, the master is just. What has he done when a corruption has been discovered? He fires the guy. It's just. That's a just response to this problem. But the master is also merciful. By law, the master could send the manager's entire family into servitude and even prison until all debts were paid, but he doesn't do that. The manager wagers everything on what he knows of the master's generous nature, that he is actually the world's best boss who seeks lost sheep, lost coins, prodigals, who is, at least from a human perspective, irrationally kind. With the books cooked, he returns the, to, he returns the spreadsheets to the master. And then comes the story's great surprise, which is this, that the master looks at this shrewdly creative employee with admiration. Now, the Greek word for shrewdly in verse 8 is the, from the root of phronimos, which means the inward, the personal, the true you that guides your outward actions. The manager, you see, has found his depths. He's found who he really is, and he acts on it. He finds that gift that he's been wasting. Do you notice? The gift he's been wasting as a manager, he now actually employs irresponsibly. And this, despite the lack of ethics, actually impresses the master. And then Jesus says that interesting word in verse 8, for the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of light. Now, Jesus is responding. Remember, think about the context, okay? Jesus is responding to those grumbling about what? They're grumbling about God's lavish generosity, that's how this whole thing started, right? God is lavishly generous, and people are grumbling about it. And he calls us to really know who God is and what God is like. God offers grace to even the most corrupt. And will turn away those who are convinced of their self-righteousness. Did you catch that? Leslie Newbigin reminds us with this, God will shock the righteous by his limitless generosity and by his tremendous severity. He is seeking out, you see, sons and daughters of light who don't complain about God's receiving of sinners, but come to the light and throw everything on the master's goodness and generosity. If we didn't realize we were lost sheep or a lost coin or a prodigal, perhaps we'll identify with the dishonest manager 
because we are those who have missed the master, blown countless chances, and can still be received by the master if we just wake up. And Jesus is not praising the manager's dishonesty. He doesn't praise self-centeredness, but he does commend his shrewd intellectual perception of the master's goodness. Did you see that? That's what he's highlighting. You see, the manager has actually made the master look even more scandalously generous. It's interesting because the first hearers of this contextually would be shaking their heads at the foolishness of the dishonest manager and recognize the master as the star of the show. The master's generosity is the true scandal of the story, which links us back to the grumbling of the Pharisees. Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? What's wrong with this guy? Why would you complain about a boss this generous? Why would you not give this boss 110%? Why wouldn't you? And the point becomes clear. The sadness of the story is human complaint about God's limitless generosity. The sadness is that having experienced that generosity, we still resist giving our all to such a gracious master. It's unforgivable that the Pharisees so miss the true nature of God, isn't it? It's mind-boggling that stewards remain so self-absorbed in the face of such lavish, gen lavish generosity. But who of us is not guilty on both accounts? Jesus is using an example of shrewd self-interest to highlight the scandalous generosity and kindness of a holy God and our responsibility for undivided kingdom of God investment with our work and our resources. You have gifts to maximize and a master to serve. God offers salvation by grace, searches us out, throws a party for us, and calls us to become his handiwork, faithful stewards of every opportunity and responsibility. Are you doing all that you can to gain all that you can for the glory of God to maximize the impact and legacy of God's goodness today for future generations and for the life to come? Listen, the stewardship of your life, the stewardship of your work and your money is one of the greatest responsibilities that you have. How we spend our days matters. Slipping into laziness or selfishness or squandering the opportunities our generous God gives is scandalous. It is a denial of my confession that Jesus Christ is the Lord of my life. If I say Jesus Christ is Lord of all that I am and all that I have, but I slip into laziness and scandalous squandering of my gifts, he is not Lord. If Jesus isn't the Lord of my money, 
And even that statement should make us all balk, because it's not mine. If Jesus isn't Lord of the money entrusted to me, then he is not Lord. Something else is. My work and my money belong to the living God, and he's the best boss ever. Now, how do we respond? Now, notice how Jesus builds on the parable. Go to verse 10, because he continues. He says, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you've not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And you have, if you've not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who's going to give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And the Pharisees, who remember, asked the question at the beginning, right? Who loved money, heard all this, and they're sneering at Jesus. And he says to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. Now, Jesus says a lot of very comforting things in his teachings. This is not one of them. <laughs> this is profoundly disturbing, isn't it? And we wonder why they decided to kill him. At issue, you see, is who we are, who we serve, and what we ultimately value. Are we faithful managers of even the smallest opportunities that we've been given? So yes, homework matters. Do we serve God and gain all we can for his goodness? Or do we serve money or mammon, which is a spiritual term of money in the scriptures. It's a spiritual power, that which can control. Do we place primary value on that which may justify us in people's eyes, but is pitiful and useless in God's sight? Now, I want to call your mind back to a few months ago, we were working through our series on our mission, vision, and values. Do you remember the ripples and callings of your life? We talked about this. The first ripple of your calling in life is your soul, your body, your mind, your being in relationship with the God of the universe. Out of there, you have a responsibility and a ripple of calling in the little spot of creation God has seen put, fit to put you on. You have a part of creation to steward. You have a household, primary relationships that you are to be a steward of. You steward the responsibilities of a fellowship like this. You're part as a believer of a church fellowship. You have a responsibility and a calling here. You have a calling and a responsibility in this city. You have a job or you meet, or maybe you're retired or maybe you're unemployed. It actually doesn't really matter. You have a responsibility for a place, for a people, and ultimately 
for a nation. And then there are parts of the wider, wider world that you have a connection with. And perhaps your only calling is to pray for that place continually. God has given you gifts, opportunities, and assignments. Start with faithfulness and gaining all you can there. Just for goodness sake, make a ripple. Make a ripple. Even if it seems as impossibly simple as producing a stout drink that can change the downward spiral of the people you care about. Just for goodness sake, make a ripple. John Wesley, who inspired Arthur Guinness over 250 years ago, provides some practical points about gaining all we can in a Christ-honoring way. We're going to end very practically. Four points. Number one, we are not to gain at the expense of life or health. We are not to gain at the expense of life or health. Our abilities are a gift from God, but so is rest and Sabbath. And so are our households and our primary relationships. And so is play, by the way. And so is your physical body. Work should not destroy my wholeness as one made in God's image. The need for money should not ruin the wholeness of my life. Long before the dangers of lead poisoning were fully known, John Wesley urged Christians who were working with lead to exchange their work as quickly as possible so that they would not exchange life or health for gain. Sacrificing your physical, your emotional, your relational health simply to make more money is not good stewardship of your life. And it's not honoring to God. So don't gain at the expense of your life and health. Second, we should not gain through any occupation which harms our mind. Now, this is something we don't tend to think about because we tend to think, well, I'm going to go to school or I'm going to do some type of training and I use my mind for my work. But we should not gain at any occupation that harms our mind. Because if you have to shut off your mind, which is to be bathed in the truth of God's word, or surrender Christ-centered, spirit-led integrity, or you have to begin rationalizing that which is not clearly from the mind of God in order to get your work done, or even worse, if you are a Christian employer who is expecting that of your employees, cease and desist ASAP. It's wrong. To Wesley, this meant abstaining from any occupation where lying or cheating or focusing the mind on that which is warped was expected. This is a degrading of the Christ-centered mind, and ultimately it corrupts us. Believers are to have their minds focused on what is true and noble and admirable. And guess what? When Paul wrote those words in Philippians 4, he was not thinking about what you give your mind to in an hour or a bit like this. He meant with your life. When we rightly perceive God as lavishly generous, we desire to employ our minds with that kind of clarity as well. Anything else undermines the dignity that we were created for and redeemed for. Third, we should not gain by taking advantage of our neighbor. For Wesley, in the 1750s, 
This eliminated gaining through gambling enterprises, pawnbroking, usury, or selling goods below market value to run your competitor out of business. If we gain through taking advantage of another, benefiting from somebody else's misfortune, preying on a weakness, or causing suffering to get ahead, then we're not reflecting the generous nature of our master, are we? And God will honor right things done in righteous ways. We are definitely, if we're taking advantage of our neighbor, we are definitely not hearing the great command, which is to love the Lord with all you are and love your neighbor as yourself. That's not just for this room, is it? Fourth, we should not gain at the expense of our souls. If getting ahead means sacrificing my spiritual wealth and health, if my work quenches the work of the Spirit in me, makes no space for discipleship, makes me too busy to care for my soul, or causes me to deny my Lord, then I may gain the world, but forfeit my very soul. I lose my very identity. I become that which I chase. My outside and my inner life are to be integral and whole. In God's kingdom, you see, there is no secular or sacred divide. Jesus is Lord of all. Worship, you see, is not a service I attend, but a life of serving the best boss ever. And this does not mean, by the way, and I want you to hear this very clearly, this does not mean that the only worthy work out there is in not-for-profit work or ministry. Or that we should only work where nobody swears. Or that we should, or that this only matters if I only have a job. What if I'm unemployed or can't work? Because you see, work from a biblical perspective has value whether it gains a salary or not. See, it's our Western thinking that, apply, that means work equals money. That is not a biblical understanding of work. There was work granted to human beings before there was ever a transaction in a bank account. Okay? Work from a biblical perspective has value whether it gains a salary or not. Work is part of our unique human dignity and our call to discipleship. Listen to this quote. The truth is not that God is finding us a place for our gifts, but that God has created us and our gifts for a place of his choosing, and we will only be ourselves when we are finally there. Did you catch it? I'm going to read it again. The truth is not that God is finding a place for our gifts, but that God has created us and our gifts for a place of his choosing. And we will only be ourselves when we're finally there. Guess who said that? Os Guinness. We approach work, no matter how menial or monumental saying, I do this as one fully alive and bringing glory to God. I am a vehicle of the grace of God here. My labor is a worshipful act of my soul. 
and it's making me whole. I am a participant in the will of a good and a generous God. Through this work, I can raise the value of my society, the dignity of human beings, and help lost sheep, lost coins, and lost sons and daughters find a home. This work plants seeds or continues to water a world that is increasingly reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. That is precisely what Arthur Guinness's Dublin Risk was all about. And it should be ours too. Gain all you can. Let's go to prayer. I, I, I recognize as we still ourselves in silence for a moment here, let's recognize that when, when, we, when we're challenged and hear these truths of Scripture around the stuff that we give so much of our time and energy and attention to, there's stuff that can stir in us. And, and sometimes, sometimes, and you can argue with me, but sometimes actually we just start arguing with God. <laughs> and the Holy Spirit is like stirring stuff, but we want to push back like, like Pharisees grumbling about God's generosity. But the way forward is a humble response to a generous God. And the giving of yourself, whether you're in school, unemployed, you're disabled and you can't work, doesn't matter whether you're making $150,000 a year. At issue is who you are, who do you serve, and what has ultimate value. And every thing we put our hand to is his. Our good and gracious God, we humble ourselves before you this morning. We're so grateful that you love us and you chase us down. You call us to yourself, but you have greater things in mind than just our spiritual happiness. You're seeking to change cities and nations, transform systems, bring the kingdom of heaven alive. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, Lord. How will that be answered if there isn't just one more of us that say, everything I am, Lord, is yours. I'll gain everything I can through the opportunities and responsibilities and the work that you give me. And even if it's unseen, I'll still do it with all that I am because you're a generous, good, loving, faithful, just God. And we humble ourselves before you. Thank you, oh God, for the multiplicity of gifts and capacity in this room. Oh, Heavenly Father, by the power of your Spirit, unleash these, your saints, for even greater things than they have yet determined. Lord, give them favor and opportunity. I don't care if they make a salary or not. Lord, just give them opportunity to gain all they can. Open every door. Break down every wall. Change every mindset that is warped 
about who you are. And lead us, O oh God, in the way eternal. That as we leave this place today, we would be going as those sent into this city and the places we have responsibility for to bring about the kingdom in the little ways you've called us and chosen for us. We worship you. We praise you. In the mighty name of Jesus and all God's people said,